0: Hi, this is Erica Schultz. And Claire Connolly. And you're listening, listening to, to Adrian, Adrian Has Issues. issues.
1: guys welcome to adrian has issues of the many things i'm a huge fan of well other than comic books is well history my dad grew up being a very big history buff and so did i and unfortunately as i realized the two sort of met in a lot of ways because the history i was interested in was less about world history or even american history but just learning the past and just learning about the things that took place and how they shaped our current climate and then our future climate. And as we've discussed before with other guests and like, let's say, J. Jacob Barker, who was on episode 63, you know, we talked a little bit about how it's important to reflect on your past and then learn as to where you came from so you know where you're going. And so we're going to take that very same approach and make it super geeky, Today's guest is uh, returning. He was on episode 29, which I believe was The World According to Maggie. And we talked about his comic, Sweetie, which if you have not picked that up, pick it up. It is fantastic. He's the writer and his buddy, Sean Dillon, is the artist and it's a really awesome book. But he's here to educate us and school me because well, really, at the end of the day, like I'm the student on this episode. So please give it up for Steve Petravelli. Steve, welcome back.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me back.
1: Anytime. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) and I probably shouldn't bring it up, but I just love the message you sent me about the episode because at first when I read it, I'm like, wait, hold on, why wouldn't I want to do this? Like, this is awesome. Like, I'm so glad when people come with me with ideas because at the end of the day, the guests are pretty much the stars of the show. So if someone comes to me and is like, hey, you got this great idea and would you be interested? I'm like, you know what? Let's try it. You know, let's just do it. You know, I'm at this very why not approach in life right now. So you are someone who's very big into history, but also comic book history. So before we get into anything, how did that really come about? Was that just something that you just sort of fell into? Or was that something that was maybe brought on to you by somebody else?
0: Well, honestly, um, I've always been one of those people that when I really get into something, I get a passion for something, I really dive into it. And I've always been a huge fan of history. Um And then when kind of comic books came in, it's actually kind of funny. Is The way I've really gotten into comic books was there was there's a podcast um, called iFanboy. And they also used to do video shows. And they do a lot of these little video shows about just certain issues or people. And I was like, it, they kind of wouldn't talk a ton about history, but it kind of came up. and I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And I'm also a huge documentary buff. Um, and so when I really started getting into comics, I started looking up documentaries. Um And actually, one of the first things me and Sean talked about, was I was like, I have all these documentaries that you need to send them literally a list of probably five or six documentaries that I thought you should check out. And from that, um, it just kind of blew up. Being a history buff, and especially um, someone who really loves turn of the century, 1900s, uh, about the 1960s, 1970s, which is really when the birth of the comic industry came, you know, I think that also has something to do with it. So it was one of those things where anytime there's a book out or anytime there's something you know, that I can, I can ingest to kind of learn more. I'm always there to do it. My girlfriend always jokes that I'm either reading a comic book or I'm reading something that is about comic books. It's (laughs) it's kind of how I am. So as I got more into comics, I just kind of wanted to learn more about the industry. And then as I got more into that, I was like, it's almost the the grail to find something I, I don't want to sound like I was like, Oh, I'm so smart. But it's almost Exciting to find something that I don't know, because a lot of times the documentaries kind of go over the same things over and over again. It's really fun to find something that's like, oh, I didn't know that, you know. And it's really cool to find those kind of hidden gems and to find those things that just like kind of, you know, can expand the industry, you know. And and I will say it's an industry that I love, and you know, as I became more involved in it, you know, I wanted to learn, hey, who who started this? Who pioneered? everything, you know, where does this history come from? And, you know, as continue to this day, I want to learn more. I I have another book that I'm looking forward to read this year about the connections between the the mob and comic books in the nineteen thirties and forties. Um and I cannot wait to read that.
1: Okay. I'm sorry, like the historian in me um okay. I'm gonna get my thoughts here because you said (laughs) the mob and comic books and already And this is kind of weird to admit, but I had this weird fascination with organized crime.
0: <laughs> you're right in the right place. Um, so if we want to get into it, I will start. Is that good? That's cool. Yeah, cause I'm sorry.
1: like I didn't really, you know, it doesn't surprise me because I know like the mafia pretty much ran deep in like the movie and music industry, but I'm like, damn, even comics,
0: yeah, and I'll get into that briefly, but I'm excited to read that book. But um really, to start it off, um, if we really want to start with the history of comics, it really starts with newspaper strips, and those started in the late 1800s, and the thing that's kind of funny about newspaper strips is that they were originally really looked down upon, and and people were protesting them being in newspapers, Um, they thought that they were kind of bringing the intelligence level down of the newspaper, so even from the very beginning, people were just like, ah, comics are bad for you, even when they first got birthed. From kind of where that evolved, more people started reading them, which made them, you know, the Sunday funnies. And, you know, as time progressed in the early 1900s, you know, 1920s, you know, comic artists became very popular. And, and, and back then, if you said, I want to be a cartoonist, it was newspaper strips. That's what you went to. That's what everyone's goal was. Um, there were a couple big players during this time. Milton Kniff, uh, who made Terry and the Pirate. Uh, Alex Raymond, who made uh, Flash Gordon, are probably two seen as the biggest influences when it comes to actually newspaper strips. Uh, Jack Kirby uh, says calls Milton Kniff and Alex Raymond as two of his biggest influences, and when Jack Kirby is calling you an influence, uh, you know it's a really big deal.
1: Yeah, that's... that's. I mean, granted, back then, they probably didn't think that, but now when you hear a name, that's totally like, you know pardon my French, but it's totally a holy shit moment.
0: And he saw them as legends as much as he has seen as a legend now, and... The kind of way that comic books started is actually a really funny story. So there's a guy named MC Gaines, And what he did was he had the Sunday funnies and he just had this idea. He's like, you know what? If I fold it this way and staple it, it makes it like a magazine. I'm going to grab a bunch of these. I'm going to put a 10 cent sticker on it. I'm going to just put it this newsstand and see if they sell. <laughs> that's legitimately how it started. As a legend goes, they sold out. And he's like, you know what? There's money here. So what he did is he said, you know what, I'm going to go to the syndicates, um, the people that basically sell the strips then to the newspapers. Uh, they're called syndicates. He went to the syndicates and said, hey, if you have like old uh, comic strips, I'll buy them to repackage them as magazines. So that's where, you know, comic magazine came around. And originally it was kind of like the video in a way where, like, you know, the, the strip was originally in the newspaper. But if you missed it, you know, you could catch it in the magazine. So and these were extremely popular. And this started in the ninth in like 1933, 1935. That's okay. really when that kind of all started and they were extremely popular. Between that time, a little bit after that time, I'd say 1935 to the late 30 or about 1935, um, there were two there's kind of a thing that caused a ch- change. Um, and depending on who you ask, they're going to tell you different things. So a lot of people were saying that they were running out of um, Basically strips to reproduce. They, there wasn't as many. They're kind of going through them. So I said, okay, we need some new talent. We need some fresh blood. We need some new stories. Uh, other people say, which I also think is very true, is that they thought, you know what? I bet I can make more money if I find this no-name kid who'll give me his own ideas that are good enough. You know, I can pay him half as much or maybe even less than that of what I'm paying these syndicates to get these like big name comic books. And I think they'll still sell because they're, they're still pretty popular
1: dear god that's depressing and the sad part is i guess the cynic you know the cynic in me is like well that that definitely sounds about right
0: so one thing that you saw from this is that there are a lot of people who were immigrants or or like kind of first generation immigrants mainly italians and jews um were kind of now getting jobs because before again what like people don't like to remember maybe about american history is that you know, there are a lot of times where there was a lot of racism when it came to hiring and, you know, they just weren't getting jobs anywhere else. And the one thing that I find fascinating, and especially there, there's this idea that not to go off, but the National Jewish History Museum is in Philadelphia. And I wish they would do something with it because literally the backbone of the comic book industry is American Jews. And it's really fascinating when you really look into it. The pioneers of this industry were American Jews. And, you know, it's just it's just really fascinating when you look into it. It's, where superheroes really take off is in 1938, there is these two kids from Cleveland, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, um, basically kids that were trying to peddle their stories to different syndicates, and they were being rejected. They finally came up with this idea called Superman, and they thought that this was such a good idea, and they felt they were going to send it all over the country. The syndicates are going to love it. We're going to become legitimate newspaper comic strip professionals and you know life's going to be a breeze they send it to as many syndicates as they can and they all reject it so the one thing that like i talk to a lot of people when it comes to you know rejection when it comes to comic books is that at the end of the day superman got rejected so you know just because you have a good idea and it gets rejected does not mean it's not a good idea so they were working for what was called national at the time which had basically become dc comics and they had this new action book coming out called action comics and they said, "Hey, you know, we need we need something. Uh, that Superman idea you had, you know, why don't you why don't you put that in there?" And they did, and the book sold like gangbusters. <laughs> back then, there was a lot of chasing trends, and there's kind of still that around today, but not as bad as it was back in the '30s. It's about so, Superman came out of uh, June of 1938, and basically, it's kind of a joke, but not really. But overnight, uh, the genre of superheroes emerged. And basically, at that point, publishers are like, okay, we need to come up with more people who are in costumes, and they have some sort of power, and that's where you see the birth of the superhero genre, where you see Batman come out, uh, where you see characters like the Golden Age Flash, who, by the way, has one of my favorite origins of all time. The Golden Age Flash got his powers by inhaling hard water. Wait, what? Yeah. Like,
1: I, that's such an old-timey thing to have effect. <laughs> and,
0: and they kind of talked about it on the Flash TV show when they talked to him. They said, oh, I was doing an experiment with hard water. But no, in the original comic... Oh, wow. I didn't even notice that. He got his powers by inhaling hard water. And it makes no sense. But that's just kind of how it was. Green Lantern found, got his powers by finding this this lantern, like, on a railroad. And, you know, his original weakness was wood. <laughs> you know it just it just it was just kind of those things and it was kind of i don't want to say slapdash in some way but it kind of was because they're basically like okay what's the idea you know oh he's he's uh he's 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 has uh, got a lantern okay he needs a weakness uh uh his weakness is what okay go with it give me 20 pages by friday You know, and that's kind of how it was. You know, uh, Jack Kirby is known to have a great work ethic, and he really, really did. But all the creators in the Golden and the Silver Age, especially the Golden Age, had to have a great work ethic because that's just how it was. They were expected to, you know, have the work done and have it done fast. And they did it because that was their job, you know, as it wasn't really as much of a dream for them as it is nowadays. This was just a gig that they had. One of the stories I have that really kind of think illustrates that is, um, there's a company called Timely, and Timely was, um... And Timely, of course, is what eventually became Marvel Comics. Two of Timely's first big characters were the Human Torch, and there was the original Human Torch, which was actually an android, um, and then Submariner, mariner uh, Namor. So even though those two characters are around today, they're, uh, Namor's somewhat similar, Human Torch is very different, but they were their two kind of big characters. And... Uh, the creators of them said, "Hey, you know, I think we could do a really good issue if they battled each other. And if actually, if you read the, the graphic novel Marvels, they talk about that. And they talk about this big fight between Submariner and the, and the original Human Torch."
1: Wait, Marvels is that the, the Alex Ross one? Yes. Oh, okay, that is a fantastic book. I think I read that years ago, but anyone who's listening definitely pick that up.
0: Oh no, I completely agree. It's one of my favorite graphic novels of all time. So they basically said, "Hey, ah, we should tell the story." And Martin Goodman, who is the, uh, the president of Timely Comic, or the publisher, he basically said, they said, well, if we do this, and he's like, you know what, I really like that idea. Make it 60 pages, so it's, you know, extra big. They told him this on a Thursday. His response was, have it for me on Monday. What so the hell? Gave, <laughs> yeah, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they had basically three days to get the 60-page comic done. And they didn't say, like, oh, here's our finished script. They just spitballed him an idea. And he said, go. But that's how the industry worked back then. So the kind of cool story that goes with it is that basically they called everybody that they knew in comics. Almost like they got their own creator-after-con networking thing going on. They called everybody that they knew, and they went into this apartment, and they basically all together made this comic. And on Monday morning, they had the 60-pager done.
1: That's nuts. That's still very punk rock in a way. I know it kind of predates that a lot, but it's sort of like the same aesthetic of, all right, let's get together, let's crank this out. And, you know, I'd imagine his apartment's probably not that big.
0: <laughs> oh, it wasn't. And, and, and that was the thing, you know, they weren't paid that well. And, you know, the rights and all that, weren't, weren't, they weren't getting royalty checks or anything like that. You know, they, they were kind of at the bottom of the barrel. But to them, they had a job. This was, you know, towards, though it's still towards the end of the Depression, that idea of having a job in that time, you know, you need one, you know, nowadays, of course. You need to have money, you have income. But back then, you know, it was it was just so much of you, you went to your job and you worked your butt off. And, you know, if your boss said, I need 60 pages by Monday, you gave him 60 pages by Monday. And that's just kind of how the industry was. From this, we had Timely, and uh, to go into some other publishers, um, Timely Comics was, you know, National, which is also DC, was was the big dog. You know, they had Superman, they had Batman, um, who uh, they had, and they had Flash, and they had uh, Hawkman, Spectre, Sandman. They had a bunch of different characters that were all uh, that were all selling very well. But then, you know, Timely had mainly Human Torch, the Submariner. There were other Publishers like MLJ Comics, uh, who made um, the first patriotic character called The Shield, who I think now is under DC or Marvel. Uh, There was Fawcett Comics, uh, who made Captain Marvel, and there was a huge lawsuit between uh, DC and Fawcett because they thought Captain Marvel was too much like Superman because he had dark hair, he had a cape, and he was really strong. And and they had actually a a lawsuit against them that went from, I believe, 1940 to about 1953. 13 years and then finally i believe dc won um and and the joke is that the only reason they sued them is because captain marvel was outselling superman at one point
1: (laughs) that's awesome i had actually heard um a little bit of that story um from a guest uh, jimmy le chase who has been on the show a couple times because he's a big fan of shazam and i think on one of his um episodes of his podcast he was getting a little into that and it's funny like i didn't think much of Shazam or Captain Marvel, but yeah, it's like, talk about a, a really interesting history for someone that I don't think a lot of people, like, if you're a fan of, like, Captain Marvel, or should, I keep calling him Captain Marvel, but oh my gosh, there're gonna be so many people confused by that. Okay, I'm just gonna say Shazam for the sake of argument, <laughs> but... Yeah, that story is pretty wild because then I'm sure with Marvel then, you know, creating the character Captain Marvel, there's got to be a hell of a lot of confusion between, okay, who's actually the real Captain Marvel then?
0: There's a whole thing with this Captain Marvel and Marvel now, and it's just crazy. But, like, you know, back then, you know, that was, like, the main thing, and that's how small it was. But the thing is that everyone was copying off of each other. That was kind of the thing, is that as much as they did that, you know, there was – the way that Blue Beetle came about was – Jim Steranko, who I'll talk about in a little bit, he once went up to the creator of the Blue Beetle and said, or as the story goes, he said, "You know, how'd you come up with the idea of the Blue Beetle?" And uh, he answered him with two words: Green Hornet. <laughs> and that's how that character came about. But that's how a lot of things were. You know, they said they basically, again, chasing trends. Um, Wonder Woman came out during World War II, and she became a huge influence, created by William Moulton Larson also created the polygraph test or is credited to creating the polygraph test oh get out of here yeah um he was a very interesting dude he basically was brought on as basically a consultant to help create a female character because he actually believed that america would one day become a matriarchy and he had a lot of interesting theories the other thing that was really interesting about him uh if you notice in early issues of wonder woman there's kind of this bondage theme a little bit yeah absolutely If you bound her bracelets together, she lost her will, um, and she basically became submissive. He had a family life where he had his wife and his kids, and then he had a former teacher's assistant who wore metal bracelets around the house and their kids. He had a very interesting home life, the creator of Wonder Woman. But Wonder Woman became extremely popular and became one of the most popular characters in comics as well. During this time, we're talking about you know the late 30s going to the 40s. World War II is a huge, huge thing going on. And America really isn't involved in it yet, but the superheroes are. And people know what's going on overseas. So this becomes very easy to pump out a lot of superhero stories because you have an enemy. You don't really need to come up with an idea of like, okay, what supervillains are you going to fight this month? You say, okay, he's going to go over to Japan. He's going to be a bunch of Japanese guys. And what came from this was two things. One, extremely patriotic characters, which, of course, led to Captain America, created by Joe Simon, and Jack Kirby, with, of course, the famous cover where he's punching Hitler. Right. Looking back on it, you wouldn't think it would be controversial, but it actually was at the time. Really? In which way? There were many people who were isolationists, who thought that this was being too aggressive. Uh, many people who felt that... We should not be involved in the war. This is going to look like we're making propaganda. You know, that that and so Germany, you know, basically it looks like we're getting involved and we do not want to be involved. America wanted to stay. They wanted to stay isolated. Um, and then the other thing, which a lot of people don't like to remember, but there were some German sympathizers in America, more than I think a lot of people would like to think. America's view on racism in the 1930s and 40s you know with white americans was not everyone get along it was they you know it was it was racism was a thing and it was an accepted thing so the idea right. of germans executing um jewish people maybe to a lot of americans maybe seemed like you know that's that's either they didn't care enough that they felt like oh this is wrong or there are some people who maybe disgusting discussing it might be say you know what Good riddance. They should get rid of them, you know, and, and that's just kind of how things were. As much as we like to think that we were, you know, we went in guns a-blazing, you know, and we did help win the war, there were a lot of Americans who did not support us going into war, especially from the beginning until we were attacked at Pearl Harbor. So a lot of these comics, again, were kind of seen as, you know, people weren't happy about it. But yeah, that Captain America actually got a lot of flack back in the day, which, again, you wouldn't think about.
1: Yeah, because you always kind of hear about the other half of how much it was celebrated. But I often wonder, you know, with a lot of history, you know, obviously being removed from it and, you know, things kind of get romanticized and. And I don't want to necessarily make it too mean-spirited and say, like, okay, people had, you know, rose-colored glasses and looked on things so fondly. But, yeah, I always wonder about that. Like, certain things, I'm like, I'm sure this had to have pissed somebody off at some point.
0: No, and and it definitely did. And, uh, you know, I I don't want to make it sound like everyone was an Nazi sympathizer in America. I think that's far from the truth. But I think there's a lot of things that we tend to forget about when it comes to you know, how things used to be. And, you know, we weren't there. We weren't born yet. But just, you know, from what you hear and what you read when you kind of just go beyond the textbook. But anyway, uh, World War II was huge for the comic industry. That's really when the golden age of comics really boomed. And the reason was twofold. One, you had, again, patriotism was swelling in America. And what better way to, you know, for kids to, you know, read about this than to see, you know, superheroes going over and, you know, beating the crap out of you know adolf hitler or togo or any of those guys and the same thing with that was the magazines you know in care packages a lot of the magazines that were sent were superhero comics um the soldiers and gis in their care packages would get superhero comics as kind of a morale booster showing you know again depictions of them beating up the enemy so I, i think there was a stat once in like i think it was like in every 10 magazines sent over to europe i think like At least half, if not, I think it was like maybe five to seven out of ten were superhero comics, and it might even be higher. Wow. I remember hearing that once, but it was extremely high. Sales boomed, and we're talking about millions and millions and millions upon millions of comics that nowadays doesn't happen.
1: Comics being a business even then, it may not necessarily be the most sustaining business, but yet it's making money. So like any company, they would want to just replicate that success. So I'm like, okay, they see that. Yeah, you know, these comics are becoming a thing. So obviously make as much as you can.
0: The comics were becoming extremely patriotic to the point where a lot of people, you know, it almost seems like they should be subsidized by the government. But like that, that's what it was, you know, and through World War II, the comics became extremely popular. After World War II ends, you kind of see a drop. Superheroes aren't really seen as being needed anymore. So there's other genres that really start to take off. And the thing that I always think is kind of funny is that when people think of comic books, they're always going to think superheroes. Like, you know, they, they always go hand in hand. Superheroes are what comics are made of. That actually isn't a very... The concept of superheroes being the only genre, really, that's represented in comics, or mainly represented in comics, is only, I would say, about, like, maybe 40 years old. You know, when it comes to the whole history. And the industry isn't really that old, but, you know... It's something that used to not always be the way it is, and when you're talking about the mid 40s to the 50s, uh, you want to talk about the you know, funny animal comics came about because <laughs> of Disney, mainly. Uh, you know, teenage comics like Archie, uh, Western comics, Western comics were huge, which is crazy about now because you can barely hold a Western comic, sci-fi comics, monster comics, and then the two big ones that came out, which I'm going to talk about in a second, which kind of caused some issues in some ways, were crime comics and were horror comics. These became huge, huge sellers. And you talk about, you know, the mobsters in the 1930s and, you know, the 1930s and 40s. You know, a lot of these guys back in those days were kind of seen as celebrities in a way. Yeah, they really were. (laughs) They were famous celebrities. And so they became popular. And again, it was all about chasing trends. If I'm in, you know, publishing A and I hear, you know what? that publisher over there just made a crime book and it sold X amount of units. And then my boss is like, go write a crime story. And that's just kind of how it went. Um, One of the big influences when it comes to comics, when we're talking about publishers, is a publisher called EC Comics. Okay. EC Comics is a fascinating, fascinating publisher that really came about in the 1940s and 50s. And they've been around for a while. Uh, And EC Comics, which... Basically stood for entertaining comics was started by the guy who actually started the comic industry, MC Gaines, and eventually uh, it was taken over by his son, Max Gaines. He basically, you know, had the they were doing these Bible stories because basically, you know, the original his dad was like, oh, I want to make stories that you know help kids and you know are going to educate them. Or it started as educational comics and then turned to entertaining comics.
1: It's <laughs> kind of an interesting dynamic. That's that's so telling in a lot of ways. It is, because educational
0: stuff doesn't sell. Um, and then so uh, they started telling science fiction stories, and they started telling horror stories. And Tales from the Crypt came from this publisher, EC Comics. You know, Tales from the Crypt, they had eerie tales, they had strange science fiction, they had all these different type of stories, and they became very popular. And you'll find a lot of people today, um, a lot of well, older older than us, um, that look back on EC very fondly, The uh, creator of Night of the Living Dead, George Romero, has stated many times that he was raised by EC Comics, you know, and, and the way that he kind of told his story came from those stories. So a lot of people, not just in the comic industry, but in, you know, the entertainment industry, in the horror genre, in the science fiction genre, were really influenced by this publisher that wasn't around very long, or at least prominently around for very long. One of the stories that I, that I really love about them was they did these things called preachies and one of my favorite stories and this will tell you like how forward thinking they were uh in the 1950s there was a story once that basically was them uh, it was basically about the united there was a a space united nations and they were going to this new planet and if they got approved they joined basically the space united nations and they went in and there's all these different robots who are different colors And like the one robots were doing one thing. And basically there was a hierarchy depending on what color robot you were. And the the spaceman looked at it and he's like, okay, And he goes back to his spaceship and says, you know, this this planet is still organizing, you know, basically has a higher class system. We don't think that they're fit to join the Space UN. And the astronaut pulls off his helmet and is actually a black man, which in the 1950s is a huge, huge statement really showing that identifying racism as, you know, as an issue. And this was, again, in the 1950s. And this wasn't something that people really talked about. Or, you know, it wasn't something that a publisher was going to take a stand on. So EC took a lot of stands that a lot of people back in that day wouldn't have done. But in a lot of ways, that also made them a target. In which way? Well, in the 1950s, juvenile delinquency started becoming a huge huge um i don't want to say huge issue but it, it kind of started becoming more normal. people were moving to suburbia you know so the things that maybe a kid maybe got away with in the city maybe they didn't get away as much in suburbia so there was a a psychiatrist named dr uh, dr frederick wortham and he created a book called seduction of the innocent seduction of the innocent was basically a book that said that comic books nowadays are causing juvenile delinquency he basically he had a uh, it was a psychiatric juvenile psychiatric uh, hospital in Harlem. And he would go up to the kids and he would say, you know, he would just ask them questions about like kind of what media they are ingesting. And all of them would say comic books. Now, this was back in the day when comic books were probably, you know, because TV was just starting out. It wasn't really around as much. Right. So their entertainment was comic books. You know, that would be kind of like this, like the video game thing became back in the 90s. Where, you know, they'd be like, well, all these kids are playing these video games, and, you know, they're causing a ruckus, so it must be these damn video games' fault. (laughs) So, it's very similar. He wrote this book, you know, people start reading it, really believing it, and so comic books really go down the drain. And EC is one of the big publishers that gets um, nabbed because of the horror books, because of the science fiction tales that were probably seen a little bit too... Preachy in a way, or maybe saying things that they didn't really. This was all during the Red Scare. This was all during that kind of same time frame of, you know, what is causing all this trouble and how do we stop it?
1: Does this actually predate the comic book code or is this roughly around the same time? This is actually
0: what led to the comic book code. Okay. So basically, what you have is that you have a, a Senate hearing that happened with Dr. Wortham as the, the prime witness. One of the things that's very interesting about this is that the senator that was leading the switch hunt, and I wish I would have written his name down because I do not remember it. Basically, uh, this is when TV was just kind of starting to the point where not everyone had a TV, but, like, there was probably one person in the neighborhood that have it. And so when something big happened, everyone would go to that neighbor's house and watch it. Um, a few, I think it was about, if not a year before, but, like, a little bit around that time, there was a hearing that was held to kind of help stop organized crime and those hearings were basically you know they just looked a certain way and you know the it, the the person that was leading that became very popular in politics and it really boosted his career so continuing forward to the comic book one the senator that was in charge of basically the senate hearings on purpose helped design just like the way the courtroom looked the way the prosecution was like articulating just basically he designed so this trial looked very similar to the organized crime trial. Now, we kind of talked in the beginning. Yeah, there were some in the very beginning of comics. There were some times with organized crime because basically it was like, hey, we need to do something that's a little bit more legitimate. These kind of comic books, no one's really going to care about if we fudge the books a little bit because no one really cares or gives a crap about comics. But at this time, it wasn't really like that. But it's interesting to see they helped vilify comic books just by the way they organized the trial. Because when people looked at it, even if they didn't think, hey, that looks a lot like the mob trial, they subconsciously thought mobs comic books together. And that was one of the things that really led to people really be starting to become afraid of comic books. A thing where if you talk to not our generation and maybe our parents' generation or the generation before that, you got in trouble if you were reading comic books. And the easiest way I can say that is that thanks to kind of all of this that happened, comic books were seen basically as porn. Right. It was seen as smut. And the only person that really tried to defend the comic books, because open letters were sent to all the publishers to send representatives, the only person that responded was Max Gaines, who was founder or the editor of EC Comics. Huh. As admirable as that is, it also in a lot of ways hurt them. Because Max wasn't very articulate, he, in a lot of ways, tried to. He basically was trying to defend something to people that already prosecuted him.
1: Oh, okay. So, this basically was like he was. It was
0: over before it even started. Exactly. To the point where there's a story that, after his kind of rambling, and he had a a, basically statement that he made, that it may have, in some ways, actually hurt them a little bit more. To the point where there is a story that Jack Kirby was watching the trial on TV, points at the TV, right at Max and says, stupid. <laughs> and I, I just I and, and that's kind of how it was. And it really stinks because Max and in, in, in a lot of ways, you know, had no you know, he had no ill. will you know, he he was just trying to do what he thought was right. He was trying to stand up for an industry that he actually cared about. And in a lot of ways he kind of hurt it. From basically this, the government basically said, we're going to start censoring. The comics publishers came together and said, you know what, if you don't do that. Basically, again, kind of what the video game industry did, where they said, you know what, if you don't censor us, we will start a, our own censoring organization, which was the Comics Code Authority. So if you were up in, or you see books from the 60s, 70s, um, I think possibly up until the 80s. There were some books that were still getting it, but it kind of went away. You would have that stamp for approval that said, you know, this book wasn't too naughty or anything. And so they got the comic code authority. And back then, it was a very big deal that you had to have it because there would be a lot of newsstands that would not carry it. You know, a lot of people say, well, why wouldn't they just not get the comic code? Because basically, if you didn't have it, there were many, many distributors that would not carry you.
1: Right, much like with video games where, like, you know, I'm sorry about to bring it back there, where, you know, there's a reason why the adults-only rating rarely gets passed, and stores won't carry video games with the A rating. As a matter of fact, I mean, shoot. In C-17, well, rated R even, as far as movies go, studios will figure if it has that rating, theaters will be reluctant to show it. So, there you go. Like, you've basically kind of already cut a lot of the business.
0: and th- And that's kind of what it really was, is that, you know... There comic books were being thrown. You know, there were book burnings of comic books. There were kids that would basically go to libraries, burn these comics, or basically give them to someone who would basically put them through a shredder, and they get a free book or something. You know, these were these were seen as as awful, awful things that should be eliminated. And so, you know, this was the only way that the comic industry could basically save itself. And actually. There's a couple comic book historians who believe this, and I'm actually, from what I've, from what I've seen and just what I know about basic pop culture, I would agree with it. A lot of people say that if it wasn't for the invention or basically the popularization of rock and roll in the mid 1950s, the comic book industry could have died altogether. Because basically, after this witch hunt, which was very hot, basically they were just like, okay, what, oh, oh, what's this? Oh, God, it's Elvis Presley. He's generating his hips. That's terrible. And they then all, put all their guns on that, then the conflict industry was able to you know, create the code, start building up again, and start to kind of revitalize. If you think <laughs> about it, if it wasn't for rock and roll, and all those guns would have continued to be pointed at the comic industry, the comic industry could have died. The publishers were firing people left and right because they weren't making nearly as much money as they could. People weren't buying them anymore because, again, this was seen as porn. This was seen as smut, even though it wasn't. Parents would make sure their kids were buying it. Newsstands overall didn't want to carry it, and you either had other comic book publishers who, you know, who were basically doling down the books. And when you dolled down the comics, the stories don't become nearly as good. You're going to lose any adult reader who may have been somewhat interested, and in all you're going to get stuck with with kids and kids who don't have their own income, who are mainly relying on their parents to give them, you know, maybe a, a dime a dime a week or something. You know, and the the kid has other things they can spend it on, you know, there's other things and, and that's really what it came down to. Is that in the mid you know, with the passing of the comics code and this vilification of it, it nearly killed the comic book industry in a lot of ways.
1: Hey everybody, this is Brian and this is Tony from the Salty Language Podcast or PogOs Network. Check us out saltylanguage.com dot com. We're a podcast about two old time friends just sitting around and Talking about whatever chaps our asses. It's true. Whether it be music, TV, comics, books. Yep, we have interviews at times. Get a hold of us on uh, Twitter at Salty underscore Language. And again, go to SaltyLanguage.com for all of our other links. I guess uh, have a beer, you'll be fine. And stay salty. Now, do you wonder if... Let's say, even if it died out, do you maybe think that at some point someone would have maybe picked up the pen again, so to speak? Or do you think that would have just been it?
0: That's a really good question. Uh, I, you know, I I would like to think that eventually that people would pick up the pen again. At the same time, basically, they would have to start from the ground floor up. I would hope that someone would eventually come along and basically revitalize it. But again, they would have to start from the ground floor and really have to build the industry up again and I think that would take a lot of work and a lot of money that maybe someone wouldn't be willing to give up, you know, for something that was maybe seen as a fad, for something that wasn't, you know, around really that would have been around that really they only really only been around for about twenty years.
1: Yeah. And that's something I think about a lot and something that I even take for granted because something that I often repeat on this show and then, you know, talking to other creators or just people in general is that, you know, it's a great time right now because there's so many people who are involved in comics and it's not just the big two anymore. You know, there's people who are self-publishing out of their own houses or what have you. And it's a kind of a cool time to be a creator. But yet, as I'm realizing, it definitely was not the way it always was. I shouldn't say worse, but there was even a lot less uh, comic creating going on at that time because there was even fewer companies, especially at the time you described, that were even doing it. So yeah, you're probably right. It would have been a very long time before anybody would have thought it was viable to do, despite the fact that maybe there was a desire to.
0: If you look at the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, outside of really getting a daily strip in the newspaper, there were people that dreamed of doing that, but comic books were a way station for a lot of people. The reason Stanley changed his name was because he thought he would be his real name is Stanley Martin Lieber. But he thought, oh, one day I'm going to write the great American novel, so I'm going to use this pen name Stan Lee. You know, a lot of people used pen names. Jack Kirby is really Jacob Kurtzberg. A lot of the original creators, you know, used pen names partially maybe just to hide how ethnic their name was. But then also because they they at the end of the day they saw it as I'm here to draw because I can draw. I didn't ever want to draw comic books, but I have the ability to draw. They're paying me to draw, so I'm going to draw. You know, John Romita and many of has said, "Yeah, I like drawing comics. Help me pay off my mortgage." He looked at it as a job, and that's how many of these people looked at it. It wasn't really a dream back then. Um, Stan Lee got the job at Marvel at six sixteen because he needed a job, and his uncle Martin Goodman was the head. At the publisher that Timely was a, uh, you know, a, a subsidiary of, you know, he needed a job there. And they gave him a job. He didn't get into it because he loved comics. He got it because I like stories. I think I'm a good storyteller. My my uh, cousin, or it's my cousin's husband, works for a publisher. They need an assistant. I need a job. Let's go for it. Now, I
1: also wonder, much like we have now, there's still this sort of back and forth between people who want to make comics and then people who not really almost taking it seriously, that this is something that you could do and also do for a living and get paid pretty well for. Something that I've always noticed a lot is a lot of people still view comics and even comic book creating as almost like a hobby, like not necessarily something that someone could do as a career. So I don't know, does that play a little bit into what was happening here? Or is that not really in the scope, so to speak?
0: thing is, is that back in the day, you know, they they would probably want to get into other fields. But really, when it comes down to it, you know, comics wasn't something you aspired to get into. You know, the reason that a lot of people, a lot of the original creators were Jewish was because that was really the only place they could get a job. You know, if they wanted to be a storyteller, if they wanted to be an artist, that's just kind of how it was. It's not like nowadays where you really need to work your butt off because there's millions and millions. You go to a make comics the Marvel way panel or learn to make comics the Marvel way panel at San Diego Comic Con. And there are thousands upon thousands of people there. Back then, you know, it was basically, you know, if they had an opening and they'd be like, you really want to make comics? It was kind of like that. You know, Stan Lee, when he would go to parties and they would say, what do you do? He would say, I work in literature. And the joke that he used to tell was, I would tell people I work in literature. And then they'd be like, well, what kind of literature. And they'd be like, well, uh, children's literature. <laughs> and then they'd be like, well, what do you mean? What type of children's literature? Like, ah, I, I work in comic books. And then, then the person would look at him and walk away because that's just kind of how it was it wasn't a romantic field especially during the trials especially during the kind of dark ages as it's called between the golden age and eventually what led to the silver age the silver age it happened in the late 1950s the silver age was believed to happen to believe around kind of 1956 and what really happened back in 1956 was the reintroduction of The DC Comics Superheroes. And where this all started was with an editor called Julie Schwartz. Uh, He was hired in the 40s, but really didn't come into prominence until like the 50s. And he was a science fiction uh, editor, and they brought him in. And he had the idea of saying, you know what? It's been some time since the superheroes were around. Not a lot of our other books are selling that well. You know, let's let's try to polish these guys off and do it again. And from that, they said, but let's, you know, redesign it, let's retell it, we can use the same characters, but let's change it a little bit. And so in 1956, we have the return of the Flash in showcase comics number four, and it sold extremely, extremely well. Now, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman were still around at this point, still selling decent, but not great. But they brought back the Flash, and they said, you know what? This is selling really well. Let's, let's, who else? Do? Oh, Green Lantern, okay. Let's redo Green Lantern. Let's make him a space cop. You know, (laughs) Let's make it more. That's basically what it was. It was signed. We were trying to do some type of sci-fi in the 1960s. And then next after that, they said, okay, well, we have these characters back. We have this new character, John Jones, who they did in the back of Detective Comics. Let's make a team. Let's bring back the Justice Society of America. And Julie Schwartz said, you know, I don't like that name. I want something with a little more punch. And he really liked baseball. So he came up with the Justice League of America, and they said, "Okay, Brave and the Bold 25, let's do this Justice League. Let's see how it works." And it sold like crazy. It was such a popular book, and really became, you know, just really just became this, you know, gangbusters in sales. And that led to the the creation again of Hawkman, created the Atom, and all these other you know superhero characters that came after that. And that really started the new DC universe. Now, the thing that's kind of funny about the Justice League, that if it really wasn't for the Justice League selling so well, Marvel, as we know it, may have not happened. Now, what do you mean in that regard? So as the story goes, Martin Goodman, the head of of Timely Comics, basically was playing golf with one of the heads of the distributor for DC Comics. And they were golfing, as you know, businessmen do. And <laughs> and the one distributor is like, oh, we got this book called Justice League. They're putting all the superheroes together in one book and it's selling like crazy. And Martin Goodman, again, chasing trends, went back to Stanley, who was pretty much at this point because of everything that happened during the nineteen fifties with the trials, was the one of the only people left. And he goes to Stanley and he says, Hey, Stan, come on write me a book with the superhero team. And Stan Lee's just like, it's like okay, fine, that's what you want me to do. Now Stan at this point was almost burnt out. Uh, He was ready to quit. And he was tired of basically telling the stories that were kind of left for him to tell with how the comics code was and kind of just how comics were seen to be told, which was a very kiddie story, a very friendly, a very easy story. And he was getting ready to quit anyway, and he goes back and he talks to his wife and he says, you know, I really don't want to do this. He's like, I'm just going to tell some stupid story that I'm not really going to enjoy. And his wife says, Stan, you want to quit anyway. Tell the story that you want to tell. And at the end of the day... What's the worst thing they're gonna do? They're gonna fire you. You're gonna you're gonna quit soon anyway. <laughs>
1: you know what's funny? Going back a little bit uh, to the first time you're on the show, we were talking about Power Rangers. Yeah. <laughs> I know, complete aside though, but I remember that was kind of the story of how like Power Rangers in Space happened, where it's like all the f- writers were gonna lose their jobs and the show's getting canceled. It's like you know what? Let's just do you know whatever. We're gonna lose our jobs, so let's just go for broke and then just tell the story. What are you gonna like? I said, what's the worst that happen?
0: Yeah, and, and it's <laughs> such, and, and you know, I'm a real big proponent of just laying. The the writer right because at the end of the day when they have those handcuffs kind of off that's really when i think storytelling can really become great absolutely and he comes up with the fantastic Four because there really wasn't any characters that you know one stan really didn't want they didn't really have a great stable they had they had human torch Submariner, and captain america they were their big three characters and stan didn't really want to use them he reused the the human torch but it was a new human torch but he basically as the story goes he came up with this idea of the fantastic four he goes to jack kirby and creates what's called the marvel method uh, marvel the marvel method was really one the way that that stanley was able to write so many different books back in the day but it was the way that they scripted the marvel comics for pretty much like kind of through stanley's run and basically how that was was that stan would go to an artist and give them a rough idea of the plot. And basically say, this is my story. Fantastic Four, Cosmic Rays, blah, blah, blah. And he kind t- of talked to him about it. Jack would then draw it. And then Stan would go in and, and, and fill in the, the word balloons. So that's why you have a lot of those early Marvel comics. Where you see someone like, pointing to the plane. And they're like, look, it's a plane! Because you know, Stan <laughs> was kind of going back through and writing in. Um, I've actually started going back and reading the early Fantastic Four comics. Because as such a huge Marvel fan and a comic book historian, you know, I, I really feel like it's something that I should read just to know the past. And if you look at that first book, it was very interesting. And as much as it doesn't seem like it's a huge deal now, those characters were very, very groundbreaking. Having Mr. Fantastic kind of be that kind of frantic, you know, over explainer, having the thing be brooding just so brooding in those early books about being i wish i wasn't a superhero you would never hear superman or batman or you know green lantern say that well now you would i mean it happens all the time (laughs) but that's what marvel changed you know you have superheroes that brood but you didn't have that back then and stan lee you know brought it in and it sold incredibly And I'm a huge Fantastic Four fan, partially because I am a history. uh, I love the history of comics and I know how important they are. I'm a huge Fantastic Four fan. I wish that they would finally do a story right in the movies. I'm very sad that the book got canceled. I understand why. But the Fantastic Four is very important. And at one point was one of the best selling books at Marvel to the point where Marvel, if they wanted to hype up like when the Hulk came out. To hype up that book, they had Johnny Storm reading the Hulk book. <laughs> you know, they in the first issue of Spider-Man, he goes to the Fantastic Four because they thought, oh, if they see him going to the Fantastic Four, more people will read it. Right. So, you know, the Fantastic Four really do have a huge, huge uh, influence when it comes to the whole Marvel Universe overall. Now, the other big character when it comes to Marvel, of course, is Spider-Man. And really how he came about again is one of my favorite stories. Basically, Stanley was Stanley was told, come up with a new comic book character. Stan says fine. Uh, Stanley has always hated sidekicks. He's always hate them. He thought they were dumb. <laughs> no reason to have them. And basically, but he's like, you know, if I have a teenage character, you know, that'd be kind of cool. And he had this idea for a while of trying to come up with new kit with a new uh, superhero idea and, and the, as the story goes, he's all flying the wall. He's like, oh, sticking the walls That may be kind of cool. And he came with the idea of Spider-Man. He's like, oh, a kid. You know, that idea I've had for a while. Let's do that one. And he goes to Martin Goodman and he says, I got an idea for a new character." He's like, finally, <laughs> called Spider-Man. And Martin's like, what? And it's a teenager. He's like, what? And he's going to have problems and issues. And, you know, he, his life's going to be a wreck. And Martin Goodman just looks at him just like, this is the dumbest idea you have ever had. He's like, do you even know what a comic book superhero is? And, you know, he just thought it was a really bad idea. So Stan really liked the idea. So to appease him, uh, Martin gives him says, look, we have this comic, amazing fantasy. Uh, number 15 is the last issue. We're going to cancel it. If you really want to tell this story, get an artist, tell it there. And it'll be done. So he goes originally Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby didn't quite get the way that he wanted. So he goes to one of my favorite artists of all time. And I think very underappreciated when it comes to the history of Marvel. Jack Kirby, of course, is the king. But if you're going to talk about the next greatest influences when you're talking about um, especially the Silver Age of Steve Ditko, uh, Steve Ditko was the co-creator of Spider-Man and in a lot of ways, if it wasn't for him, the book wouldn't be what it is. I could do an entire podcast just talking about Steve Ditko. Um, (laughs) We may just have
1: to actually do that at some point, though. Because (laughs) it's like, oh, shoot, we just got into the point where, all right, now this is starting to become familiar to me because, I mean, I knew a little bit of that story, but I was like, ah, shoot. And I know at some point we're going to have to wrap up. So what we'll have to do is, upon your return, if time allows, we'll definitely have to get into that because you're right. I don't think Steve Ditko, and not that he's necessarily underappreciated, but, you know, obviously Kirby there's a reason why he's called a king yeah but i think Ditko is as every bit important and he definitely had his role to play in those early days of marvel
0: and i really agree and so when he he basically pitched an idea steve drew goes into amazing fantasy 15 amazing fantasy 15 sells fantastically and um martin calls stanley into his office and says stan come here and he says yeah he's like do you remember that spider-man story that we both really really liked yeah Let's let's do a book about it. And that's basically how Spider-Man uh, came about in the Silver Age and kind of really what blew Marvel up. They were batting a thousand, you know, with the Fantastic Four. Then comes the, the Hulk. And the Hulk has always been described as a mixture of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde and Frankenstein. Then Steve Dicko comes up with Dr. Strange uh, and then Stan Lee kind of helps him out with it. But Dr. Strange is very much Steve Dicko's idea. You know, they do Dr. Strange. They do the Avengers. They bring cat in America. Iron Man comes about because Stan Lee basically is becoming a folk hero when it comes to college campuses. And what do college campuses in the 1960s, what do they hate more than anything is the military industrialist. So he basically said, I'm going to make a military industrialist that people like, that kids like. And he did. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he created hit after hit. Except for one book, which for a long time wasn't a hit, and that was the X Men, uh, which is actually a fascinating story to itself, was that the X Men when it first came out was not really seen as the big hit that it uh, eventually became and really changed comics.
1: Yeah, it got from my understanding like it was almost on the brink of cancellation several times before. Like uh, was like I would say like the what mid to late seventies.
0: Yeah, it really, really was, and even bringing people like Neil Adams and didn't save it. But really, the thing that's really kind of hilarious about it is that eventually, instead of canceling the book, they put it into reprints. So basically, instead of making new comics, they were just reprinting the older ones from, like, issue one. And it's kind of, and then once those kind of reprints ran out, then they did the giant size X-Men and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's really interesting to think about that because if you take X-Men out of the history of comics, if you cancel it at that point... Entire industry, especially in the '90s and the late '80s. Who knows what else Jim Lee is doing? Like maybe he blows up another book. But you know, you subtract X Men from history, you possibly don't get Image. Yeah. And like the the X Men have, you know, and because of everything that's going on now, they're not nearly as huge as they once were. But for a long time, they were they were the big book, and it's interesting to think about that. But yeah, so nearly everything they created was a hit, and you really started to see jack kirby evolve and you really got to see you know these characters really grow up dc started to take notice dc started to see how popular marvel was becoming and there was one guy in particular who really um i would say really wanted to start changing things at dc and that was uh, or two guys i would say one was neil adams and one was denny o'neill and neil adams being one of the great artists in the history of comics you know, had a lot of ideas of how he wanted to change things, how he wanted to modernize things, and so did Danny O'Neill. Danny O'Neill was very much kind of of that age of, you know, you know, wanting to tell different stories, wanting to make things not as safe as they once were. You know, DC at that time again kept things safe. You know, the Batman TV show, which happened in the late 60s, you know, pretty much that was how the stories were being told again. And the thing that's kind of interesting and actually. Something that I really hope doesn't kind of become a precursor to the Marvel movies. When the Batman TV show eventually got canceled, the Batman books tanked in sales. Like, legitimately tanked. Huh. Didn't know that. Yeah. To the point where I, and not to get, I'm not going to go too much into this. I really hope that Marvel has something up their sleeves um, after the movies. Because I, I really hope the same thing doesn't happen. I don't think it will, but that's one of my biggest fears. But anyway, um, so DC wasn't doing as great. Marvel was hipper, Marvel was cooler, and there wasn't a lot going on at DC. There was a couple of books that really kind of changed the way that things were being done at DC. And the big one was the book that Neil Adams and Jenny O'Neill worked on together, and that was the Green Lantern Green Arrow series. Uh, this is a series that I really, if anyone hasn't read, it's, it's, I used to work at a comic book store and I, people would come in asking Guerrero stories and I really wanted to say, read this book because it legitimately is one of the greatest uh, superhero stories ever told, but it takes a lot to get into because it is mainly, one, it takes place in the 70s, but then also it's very much, very preachy and very kind of of the time, but then also like, it's, it's, it's very heavy. And it's hard for someone to really wrap their head around it. But I think it's an incredible story. If you're someone who is into kind of the 1970s, I think anyone who's in the complicated history should definitely pick it up. Basically, their story was taking the conservative Hal Jordan, mixing him with the liberal uh, Green Arrow, and putting them on the same team, having them travel around America, and basically running into different things that were affecting America at that time. Whether it be, most famously, of course, drugs. Um, as the famous Speedy issue came about. But there was also cults that were talked about. There was also um, racism and all those different things that they felt that needed to be talked about now in the current current day. And the most famous panel from this is actually from the first issue, and it's probably one of the most famous panels in comics, is basically there is a black man who confronts Green Lantern. And he says... You know, I hear that you are off in space and you go and you help the purple skins and the blue skins and the yellow skins. But what have you done to help the black skins on Earth? And it's a very powerful moment where you basically have Green Lantern saying, I don't know. And it was such a mind blowing thing. And I wish I could have been a kid back then, because it's almost like just any kid that would be in the superhero comics that had the slightest hint of maybe just like that's how their parents raised them. If you're reading a comic and and he'll go out and you're okay with him helping all these other people that have blue skin and purple skin and all these different aliens, but yet for some reason black people in the United States, you know, it's completely different. That would just almost blow your mind. And that was a big risk. You know, that was something that, you know, Marvels really started doing and they took a foot of, you know, Marvel making the Black Panther was a huge, huge thing. Right. Uh, Marvel creating Luke Cage, the first African-American character to have his own solo title, was a huge thing. There's actually a comic book historian who said when he was a kid, just seeing Peter Parker go to a school with black characters in the background or even just saying, hey, what's up, was huge to him because he's like, he's in an integrated school. That's so cool. And that was something that you know that the comic publishers were really forward thinking with. You know, we saw it in the beginning with the EC, and that was really, really, really kind of rare. But when you talk about the '60s going, especially into the '70s, you really start seeing the publishers really take notice that hey, things have to change. Drugs was a huge issue. Stan Lee created the a couple issues known as the Spider-Man drug issues, which were one which showed Harry Osborn being addicted to pills and another one where Spider-Man basically saved a kid who thought he could fly after getting high off of something. And when he did it, they submitted it to the comic code, as you would, and the comic code said, no, we can't give it the seal. Stan Lee said, why? They said, because you talk about drugs. And Stan Lee says, we didn't tell the kids to take drugs. And also to add to this, they were actually asked to do this by the government. The government came to them and said, can you make some comic book issues that talk about the dangers of drugs? Because it was becoming a big issue. Right. And Stanley says, sure, fine. I'm not going to make him overly preachy. I'm not going to have Spider-Man. Just say, don't do drugs, kids. But I'm going to tell it in a story. And he did. And the comic book code authority, you know, said, no, you can't do that. You can't mention drugs. So Stanley went to his publisher and he said, you know what? These are really good stories. I think they should be told. And they published them without the seal of approval, and nothing happened. The, the world didn't blow up. <laughs> Everything was fine, to the point where, and a lot of people say this as well as, as um, you know, the, the speedy issue, uh, the heroin issue, really helped kind of loosen the cuffs on the comic code to the point where it's not really around anymore. Because they, they became very, you know, not as strict when it came to certain things. And it, again, allowed the ca- the creators to be more, you know, pushing the boundaries when it came to to telling their types of stories, when it came to telling the types of stories that they wanted to tell at the time, because they wanted to stay relevant. They wanted to to move along with the times and not stay kind of, you know, in the golden age of, you know, or the silver age of the early 60s. They wanted to keep evolving. Now... To continue with the evolution, Uh, there's a creator that I wanted to talk about, mainly because I really think he does have a lot to do when it comes to evolving the comic book as a medium. Okay. But then also as someone who, I call him the Jimi Hendrix of comics because he was only around for a short time, but his influence when it comes to people who, you know, when it comes to the comics as a whole, I think has a huge influence. His name is Jim Steranko. Um, He's most famously known for working on the S.H.I.E.L.D. series. And the story goes how he got a job is he actually goes into Stanley's office with his portfolio, because you could do that back then.
1: <laughs> that's nuts. Like now, if you try to do that, you can't even like get to like the front door, let alone just approaching Stanley with the portfolio, be like, here, read this, by the way.
0: Yeah. Uh, Roy Thomas got a job at Marvel because he kept going there and hanging out to the point where just like, ah, you fine kid here, you get a job. Like that's how it worked. Which is not even close to how it is nowadays. But, you know, Jim Stranko went up, shown his portfolio, and Stan Lee said, You're too damn good like get out of you know, to get out of here. He basically points to the wall and says, Pick one. And it's pointing him to a wall of comic books. And Jim Stranko chooses Agent of Shield worked at at a publisher. And what he did is of the SHIELD comic was he really changed the way that comics were changed as a medium. He was one of the first people to do silent panels, like basically having a silent sequence with no captions or no word balloons, where Sal Brodsky, who was one of his bosses at Marvel, because he was the writer artist, told him that, hey, I will pay you for 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 drawing these, but I'm not going to pay you for writing these, to the point where then Steranko grabbed him by the collar of his shirt and said, you're going to pay me for these fucking pages, or I'm going to throw you out the window. <laughs> Holy shit, really? (laughs) Yes. And Sobrowski then paid him for the pages. Things were different (laughs) in the 70s. Oh my god, that's kind of awesome.
1: Like, I'm not necessarily advocating anybody do that, but still, like, that's kind of badass.
0: That's kind of how New York kind of was. You know, that's kind of just how it was back in the day. And, you know, not to go too long into it, but basically, if you see the way the comics are told now, the way that using the medium to the fullest. You know, Jim Storenko is at the front of this, using pop art, using optical effects. You know, he he did things that you just didn't do, doing different type of panels. You know, having having just a simple thing of, like, having a big building and then having, like, the, the title of the comic book and the creators, like, written across that building. That kind of stuff wasn't really done. And he came in and he really changed it. Because again, when we talked about before, keeping things relevant, he was now using pop art and op art. Things that were becoming extremely popular in the 70s in this current comic book foreign. And if you talk to artists, if you talk to people, and maybe a little older than us, you know, Jim Stranko is held in, in high esteem. You know, he's still around at conventions. And he's one of those guys that maybe isn't thought about when it comes to, you know, you know, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, you know, John Romita, you know, all those names. But Someone that I really believe should be held in the high esteem because he really did change the industry. Um, and he did it in, a, in probably a short amount of time than a lot of people who have years and years and years of stuff. So, yeah, he, he's definitely someone that I would say would be, should be one of the people really held up in the high esteem when it comes to some of the great names in, uh, in artists because of the way he changed how comic books were made, when he changed the panel types, when he changed the way that you told the story. He actually had a panel... Of, of uh, Nicholas. Uh, I was gonna say Nick Cage, <gasps> uh, Nick Fury, <laughs> basically infiltrating this. And he had a maze that you had to follow to kind of get to each panel. He just really changed the ways that people did things. And I, I would highly recommend if you're if you're a fan of just art in general, uh, pick up some of his Shield stuff. And I, I think nowadays, into a certain eye, you might say like, oh, I see people do this. But if you think about when it was done, you know, it's it's really mind blowing. A
1: lot of stuff that we see in comics now, we kind of just take it face value, and I do this too, so I'm definitely not berating anybody else. But, you know, you take for granted because you're so used to seeing it, not realizing that at some point somebody had to have started that, and someone had to basically go out on a limb and be like, I'm going to do things a little bit differently.
0: And that's kind of the whole thing of why I love the history of comics and overall this, this whole kind of, you know, subject, is because... You know, Siegel and Schuster had to go on a limb and say, you know what, let's make this super character. You know, then you had people like at EC Comics saying, you know what, let's push the boundaries when it comes to storytelling. Let's push the boundaries when it comes to certain things. And there were some repercussions, but they still pushed the boundaries. It was Julie Schwartz in the 60s saying, let's bring comic book characters back. It was Stan Lee saying, let's make them evolve. Let's make them, you know, more than just guys in tights. You know, and it was people like Steranko and other people on the scene that said, let's change things for the better. And, and that's really why I love the history of comics, because if you really look at it, it's a bunch of people taking leaps of faith on this medium to where we are now. And I still think there's leaps of faith be, being taken. You know, Robert Kirkman with The Walking Dead, they never thought that would sell. And now it's become arguably one of the biggest franchises in the history of comics you know, when and when it comes to creator after con and to kind of tie everything that I do all together, it takes one really good idea to help change an industry. And really, when it comes to it, you never know what that's going to be. If you would have told Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster back in the day that Superman would eventually become arguably the most recognizable character in in the world, I, I would I, I would go on to say that that I think. If you go, if you you can go to anywhere in the world, you see that S, people are going to say Superman. They just know. I think they would think you were nuts because these were two Jewish kids from Cleveland who wanted to, who wanted to become famous off their cartooning, but legitimately probably never thought it would happen to everyone out there. That's like working their butt off. You need a good idea. You need opportunity. And that's really all it takes. And that's all these guys did. You know, they, they, they had some good ideas. They had opportunity and they worked their butts off.
1: It's also kind of interesting and maybe also a little bittersweet, though, because, you know, at the risk of being that guy for a lot of years, you know, going back to the idea that, you know, some of them may not have necessarily gotten the credit that they had deserved at the time in which they created them, because, you know, a lot of those, you know, talking about lawsuits, a lot of them existed up till fairly recently of at least acknowledging the fact that. You know, the creators that we know that worked on comics, you know, they also had people to help them. Like, there were also co-creators, and, you know, and I know there's, like, the Bill Finger, you know, Bob Kane thing uh, fairly recently.
0: That was a huge thing recently, and even to, to this day in superhero comics, and I think it's kind of a little bit of a smack in the face, is that if you look at the Superman comic, it does say Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, but right underneath it says, as per special... Uh, It was like as per special agreement for the Siegel family. Like you can tell it's very legal. Now, the one thing that's actually kind of interesting is, yes, I think creators rights is huge. But there are a lot of creators from that time who will tell you that they knew what they were doing, that they knew the characters belonged to the company, that they knew that, you know, they were doing a job that was work for hire. You know, Joe Simon was very famously uh, would say that, you know, um, he's like, I knew that's what I was getting into. You know, I'm not, you know, and. And, and I agree. I think if you create a character, you should get some type of royalty. But it's actually kind of interesting that you could actually find as many, as much as there are many creators from that era that say, you know, I create all these characters and I didn't see a, a cent, which is a valid, valid thing to say. There actually are quite, there are some few that, that will, that will tell you, you know, I knew exactly what I was getting into. So it's kind of interesting that way too. Um, and, and, and it is kind of, yeah, Joe Simon was extremely outspoken actually when it came to that kind of stuff. Um, it's very interesting to see. He was also probably paid better than a lot of the other people. <laughs> not great, but still probably better. Um, there. I mean, there's a lot. It's it's kind of sad to see people's names not on things. In in like I said, uh, I think I forget this was on the show, or I think it was before the show. We talked about I've been reading the Silver Age Justice League uh, kind of compendium, or not compendium, but like a graphic novel. And in the beginning is where it has you know all the names. Of you know the creators because it's not in the book and in the Fantastic Four omnibus, the first two issues of Fantastic Four has Inker as unknown. Wow! I don't know how they don't know who the Inker, but they legitimately don't know who inked the first two <laughs> issues of Fantastic Four. How is Four. that
1: possible? I mean,
0: wow! <laughs> but they legitimately don't know who inked the issues, and it's kind of sad. You know, you think there'd be someone. There probably is someone saying I inked them, but you know they they may have no hard evidence. But, you know, getting people to the point where you see everybody's names now in comics, you know, where you have not only the editors and the writers and the artists and the inkers and the letters, you have like variant cover artists. And, you know, we're at a point where it's, it's good that people are getting or getting full credit for how things work. Because, yeah, if you look at old comics, they didn't get any because at the end of the day and a lot of people didn't care as much back then because it was a job. Like I kind of said before to them, it was a job. And they were just happy to kind of have that job. You know, they're happy to be working. they were happy to be able to use their skill, which was either telling a story or drawing and using that to basically put food on the table and pay their mortgage.
1: Steve, um, you brought it today because <laughs> and like I feel like there's so much more to get into. So I hope that at some point you will be able to come back and we'll get into more stories because, oh, man, even just as an overview, like that was fantastic, man.
0: Thank you. And there's more things I could talk about. And I'd love to come uh, back on and talk about it more. Like I said, uh, history of comics is definitely one of my passions. And, you know, it's not something I get to talk about every day because I've told my girlfriend my version of the history of comics once, and that was because she loves me and she's amazing. <laughs> and she's just like, you know what, it's interesting, but I'm good with hearing it once. So uh, it w- I was just happy to, to come and talk about it. So if you want to bring me back on, I love it, man.
1: Absolutely, Steve. And like I said, I always have so much fun chatting. I mean, I always go back to the episode um, that you were originally on with Sean. And just the fact that we pretty much had geeked out about you know, talking about things that you love and people aren't necessarily interested in hearing. Like, my girlfriend and I, we share a lot of interest, but she definitely is not the biggest Power Rangers fan. So, <laughs> I was watching um, a couple of episodes and I kind of was going on about like the storylines or even just some of like behind the scenes stuff. Cause, like you, when I get into something, and like a lot of geeks do, you need to know everything. Yeah. So, you're scouring, you know, whether it be documentaries or Wikipedia or just articles that are written, like, you just need to know everything about it. And with that, comes someone to tell (laughs) and it's not necessarily everybody's cup of tea so i'm definitely with you and being a history buff and of course being a fan of comics you always have a platform to chat more about that because a lot of it i don't know and i don't know why but the story alone of just you know (laughs) that's kind of amazing but before you go as always i make sure that everybody can find your stuff so any other links or things you feel like plugging or sharing please do so (laughs)
0: Of course, Twitter's uh, at Steve underscore Petro. Uh, Same thing on Instagram. Uh, My comic, sweetiecomic.com, is where you can find information, as well as buy the comic. Uh, We also have a Facebook uh, sweetiecomic, which you can find through me or Sean. Uh, And of course, please, if you're a comic creator, uh, please follow Creator After Con Networking. Please follow Jay. Um, Jay's taking control of it, but more people that join the bigger it gets you know even better so that's all of my all of my spiels
1: that'll do it for this episode of adrian has issues and we will see you next issue Hey guys i'm adrian
0: and i'm his issues
1: wait what hey guys i'm adrian and i'm wait wait that's not right hey guys i'm adrian and i'm Eileen. tune in to the adrian has issues podcast each week we chat with some great people including me from time to time comic book creators comedians musicians and actors tax collectors zamboni drivers <sighs> Point is, basically anyone willing to sit down for a geeky discussion or two on all things pop culture. Visit AdrianHasIssues.com where you can download and stream every episode. Especially the ones featuring yours truly. Visit Adrian Has Issues on Facebook and Twitter. And subscribe to the podcast
0: on iTunes and Stitcher. Please leave a rating and review and tell me how amazing I am. Us. I mean us.
1: Ah, McKinney, you're way cooler than I am anyway. Aw, oh, thanks, babe. Oh, and Adrian Has Issues is also a proud member of the Tangent Bound Podcast Network. Awesome. Nice say, Brodor. <sighs> Visit AdrianHasIssues.com.